Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you may remember an ad campaign from several years ago for a particular investment firm. The premise was that the advice given by this firm was so valuable whenever one of their customers was about to repeat it to a friend or a colleague, everyone within earshot would fall completely silent so that they could hear these supposed words of financial wisdom. The campaign's tagline was, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Much of Jesus' early ministry seems to have earned him a similar reputation. When Jesus spoke, people listened. He held large crowds spellbound for long periods of time, communicating his message regarding the kingdom of God. The evangelists who recorded the Gospels tell us on several occasions that after Jesus had finished speaking, people were amazed by what he said, and often more so by how he had said it. Our text for today, from the seventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel, is the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon occupies essentially what all eventually became known as chapters 5, 6, and 7 of that book of the Bible. Starting way back in chapter 5, Jesus had given the Beatitudes, those wonderful assurances of the blessings that would come to those who were lacking or suffering in some way. Then Jesus had elaborated on important lessons of the law and the prophets. Several times he told the crowd, you have heard it said regarding some point of the law. But then going even further by saying, but I say to you, he taught his hearers what we now call the Lord's Prayer, and he provided them many warnings. Now, at the end of chapter 7, as he wraps up his sermon, Jesus concludes with still more law for his listeners. He gives them three primary warnings against false prophets, against false faith, and against false doctrine. Speaking of the first of these, false prophets, Jesus says, They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Who are these false prophets of whom Jesus speaks? The term prophets, as used in the Bible, did not specifically or always mean those who were predicting future events. In the New Testament, in fact, unless it was referring to those spokesmen of the old, the word prophet was more frequently used to indicate pastors and teachers in general. False prophets are not those who would threaten the church from the world outside, but rather those who would corrupt the church from within. In later years, St. Paul warned the pastors of the church at Ephesus that after him, wolves would come. They would not spare the flock of believers, but would attempt to ravage that flock. And he told the faithful that these wolves would be men from within the church itself. False prophets are deceptive. They try to hide what they really are. Wolves in sheep's clothing, to which these prophets are compared, are a subtle but dangerous threat. 
They appear innocent to the unsuspecting, yet they can be dangerous and deadly to our faith. They threaten our eternal life, even if they seem to make this life somehow more comfortable, better, less complex, less challenging. But false prophets speak with the world's viewpoint, not God's. And if we listen to the world's message, the Bible tells us, we are not of God and we are not of the truth. These false prophets are also bad trees, which yield bad fruits. That is, they generate believers, but in the wrong things. You cannot hide the sort of tree you are once the fruit has appeared on the branches. False prophets are not the sort of trees which grow grapes and figs that nourish and satisfy. Instead, they produce only the thorns and the thistles of false belief, which injure and entangle those who come too close. Jesus warns that these false prophets will be cut down. They will be thrown into the fire in the next life. They will face judgment and punishment for leading others astray. Jesus speaks in the next section of false faith, saying the following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We have a false faith if we only give lip service to calling upon his name, even if we seem to do so with great piety and earnestness. False faith also exists if we begin to slip into reliance on our own works for our salvation. Even our best efforts, done unselfishly and motivated by the Holy Spirit, are not what saves us. They are a fruit of faith, not the source of it. The kindest act of the sweetest pagan is still a sin. Article 18 of the Augsburg Confessions Apology says that without God's grace and faith, we can do no good in God's sight. Without faith, we, like the false prophets, would be only bad trees that can bear no good fruit. And all of these, with false faith, will be banished from heaven, regardless of their praise and their attempts at self-justifying works. Jesus says plainly that those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. This sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? Yet doing the will of the Father cannot possibly be this, or else those who prophesy and do great works in Jesus' name for their own sake and their own justification would be highly esteemed by him and not banished from his presence with a clear and plain dismissal. Our Lord's third warning in our text is against false doctrine. Here he says, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Sand, like false doctrine, is unstable. It is soft and it is easily changed in form and in shape. When it is dry, it crumbles. It breaks apart. It's blown around by the shifting winds. And when it is impure, saturated with corrupting materials, it becomes soupy and loose. Watered down far enough, doctrine becomes quicksand, dangerous stuff which cannot support you, 
but instead will allow you to sink slowly and fearfully to a horrible, gritty, and painful death. When a house is built on unstable sand, first the shifting ground causes the house to warp and twist, cracking its walls and letting the wind and the rain come in. The water wets us. The wind chills us. The rising floodwaters ruin our valuable possessions. Finally, the effects of the wind and the waters on our unstable and damaged houses of faith cause them to crumble and to collapse and to be swept away in the torrent. Jesus tells us that those who hear and act on his words will be like a wise man building on solid rock. That rock is his word. If we believe Jesus' words and we act on them, we will be safe in our house of faith. Good doctrine is based on God's word alone, and it remains solid despite whatever the world might throw at it. Wind and water will eventually erode natural rock, but the supernatural rock of Jesus' divine word, the word of the Lord, it endures forever as the prophet Isaiah wrote. Jesus wants us to hold fast to his words, to base our safety and our security and our confidence in that word which conveys his gospel. We are to count on it and to call upon it and to call upon his name in all times and in all places. Jesus warns that the hearers and the followers of false teachers will share in the same fate as the false teachers themselves. He tells us that right teaching really does matter. Right faith does matter. Right doctrine does matter. Even St. John, that apostle who so often we think of as emphasizing love, the one who wrote so eloquently about the love of God and the love that we are to show one another, was guided by the Holy Spirit to state quite bluntly, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not welcome him, for the one who welcomes him participates in his evil deeds. Where, then, is the gospel in this concluding text from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we heard earlier today? There are warnings there, yes. Consequences, sure. Punishments? Absolutely. But gospel? Hear this. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. What amazed the crowds about Jesus' teaching was his authority. Few of Jesus' listeners at the time knew and others only suspected what we know with certainty today, that Jesus spoke with the authority of God himself. Jesus had that authority for one simple but profound reason, not because he had superior human wisdom or eloquence or the gift of persuasion, not because, not because Jesus had lived a sinful, righteous life, not even because Jesus had miraculous power. Jesus has authority because Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
and this authority has been given to him by his Father. How can we be certain of Jesus' authority? Well, at his baptism, the Father spoke, and he said that he was well pleased with his Son. At his transfiguration, the Father spoke again and said that we should listen to him. Jesus demonstrated that he indeed had that authority, the authority to forgive sins, because he backed it up with the sign of his healing miracles. Jesus spoke in John's Gospel that he had the authority by the Father's command to lay down his life and to take it up again, authority which he proved by his own death and resurrection. What is the significance then of Jesus' authority? As the Son, He comes from the Father and He speaks for the Father. The fact of the matter is, if Jesus were not the one fulfilling all of those demands and the requirements of the law which He places before us in the Sermon on the Mount, then this entire discourse in Matthew's Gospel would be law and not Gospel at all. But the Sermon on the Mount is no mere list of rules. No set of moral imperatives that we must try to live by in order to be righteous. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount shows that Christ also has the authority because He has accomplished all of it on our behalf. Jesus alone had the authority to die for your sins. He alone has the authority to apply the effects of His righteousness to you. His authority is sufficient to allow God to declare, on account of my Son, your sins are atoned for. Your debt is forgiven. Your life is restored. Jesus' authority remains operative for us today. And thanks be to God, it is not merely consisting of His warnings and His commands. Jesus' authority is over sin, death, and Satan. He demonstrated that authority on the cross and at the empty tomb. And as He told His apostles after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Because of this, He instructed the apostles to carry out that authority unto all the earth, not a set of demands, but as His gracious gifts, the gifts of making disciples, the gift of washing them clean in baptism, the gift of, of observing, of treasuring all that He had commanded them. Jesus' authority for us resides in His Word, on the rock of which our house of faith is built by the Spirit. Built on that rock of His Word alone is the one true church, the fellowship of believers who will be saved from the later and greater fall yet to come. The Word of, the God, of God is God. The Word is His way of reaching out to us and to this fallen, perishing world today. Through His Word, His Spirit comes to us. Through His Word, forgiveness is ours. Listening to Jesus' words is nothing less than listening to Jesus Himself. His words have not changed. His teaching has not changed. His message has not changed. God's eternal Word is our authority and our defense against false prophets. 
Our Lutheran confessions on several occasions warn us that the church is not to follow or obey false prophets. It is the duty of the church. It is the duty of each and every believer to hold the words of preachers and teachers up against the words of Jesus. It will help ensure that wolves will not come into the midst of our flocks. It will help ensure that there are good trees producing good fruits. By the building up of the body of Christ, our lives will not be driven by purpose or prosperity or pop culture, but by promise, by God's promise. Serving our neighbors as God's instruments here on earth, we are confident in the salvation that is given to us by Christ's merit and not by our own. God's word is also our authority and our defense against false faith. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. But this is not a matter of any action on our part which seeks to earn his favor. Those who do his will and will be saved are not those who praise or follow Jesus simply as a teacher of wisdom or as an example of the moral life. Rather, doing the will of the Father is confessing Jesus as the incarnate, crucified, and risen Son of the Most High God. It is recognizing that He has fulfilled all of the law and the prophets for us. It is trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus for the remission of our sins. And it is having confidence and hope in our salvation and eternal life through His resurrection. Finally, God's eternal and unchanging Word is also our authority and our defense against false doctrine. Those who ignore Jesus' words will meet a fate like those who fail to heed Noah's warning. They will be swept away in a flood of eternal destruction. We, however, listen to the words of the Son, as the Son has listened to the Father and has done His will. Be amazed, along with those ancient crowds then, that Jesus taught and still teaches with authority. Rejoice that this authority still dwells in His church through His holy word. Give thanks that by Christ's authority and not by His own, a pastor baptized you in God's name. By Christ's authority and not by their own, pastors preach and teach His word. By Christ's authority and not their own, they forgive you all your sins. By Christ's authority and not by their own, they speak His words, My body given for you, my blood shed for you. May the certainty of Christ's authority to forgive your sins, to conquer your death, and to give you everlasting life, bring you peace and joy and comfort this day and always. Amen.